Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Well, today we're going to be going together and looking in the book of Matthew chapter 16 at something Jesus said. And the title of our message today is Church on the Rock. What a catchy phrase. Well, uh, it, it, it comes from verse 18. Um, but we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, you know, God intended for Jesus to be our personal Lord, personal Savior. Jesus is a personal experience. You have to have a personal experience for Jesus to be what he wants to be in your life. Uh, and even though Jesus is a personal experience, he's not a private experience. In other words, salvation is intended to be personal, but not private. Our salvation is, is not a private matter. It's a personal matter. But it's not intended by God to be kept private. Our salvation should be a public matter. It should be so that, uh, that, that people in my family, my friends, people you know, uh, on, 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 you know, at, at, at our workplace, at our schools, you know, they should know that we are saved. They should know that we are born again. They should be able to look and tell, but also they should be able to listen and see that we are saved. Salvation is a personal matter. I can remember years ago uh, whenever I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico and I got on fire for Jesus for the first time in my life and I, and I went and I started knocking door to door every Saturday morning. I, I wanted to just preach. I wanted to witness and you know, uh, you, know, you, you know how you can tell when somebody's called to preach? They're preaching. Okay? They're not waiting for a pulpit. They're preaching. Okay? You want to know when somebody's you know, uh, called you know, into the ministry? They're ministering. Okay? Uh, you know, that, that doesn't just happen in church. It should happen as, a, as an outflow of our life. And, and you know, I, uh, I was still in the military and, uh, you know, had, had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, job requirements. But I had Saturday mornings off. And for me, that was my, my baptism in getting out there and getting involved and, and sharing Jesus. I would just go out by myself and knock on door after door after door all over Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, and, uh, and, and, and tell people about Jesus, ask them if I could just witness to them and just share with them what Jesus had done in my life, you know. And, and, uh, and, and, and I led so many people to the Lord, and then I got, you know, rejected quite a lot as well. Uh, but, but the reality of, of, of sharing Christ with others uh, uh, caused me to, to, to know that there, are, that, that there are so many hungry people out there. They really are hungry, and they're hiding. And, and many people would, 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 would even say something like this. Well, well yes, uh, yes, I have been saved, but that is a private matter. Yeah. Ooh, where'd they get that? That's, that's a message straight from the devil. That is, that is not, that is so anti-word. Okay? I mean, it sounds good, but it's not good. Okay? Don't let the devil sell you on that trick. It's not a private matter. It's a personal matter, but it's not a private matter. Okay, enough of my soapbox. Hold on to that thought. Salvation intended to be personal but not private. Hold on to that thought uh, while we look at the book of Matthew, okay? And remember, God can be generic, but Jesus is specific, okay? Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. 
When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some, and, and, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus, in this passage... He describes his goal. He is passionate about his primary goal, about his mission on planet Earth. Jesus has, has, has revealed that he is on a mission, and his mission is uh, encapsulated in these words that I will build my church. I will build my church. I'm going to build it upon a rock. I will build my church. It is his primary objective. It's his goal. It's his mission. And he's very passionate about it. And for all practical purposes this morning, we will describe the church as family. Church is family. We are the family of God in the earth and in heaven. We are the family of God. No one person is the church. And whenever we talk about church, and when Jesus talked about the church, he's not talking just about one individual. He did not say, well, the reason I'm here in my greatest mission is to build you up and to make, you know, we are a means to his end on planet earth. Jesus on earth has a goal to build the church. It is not for, it is not, well, Jesus came to save me. And he is building an eternity for me. But while I'm on earth, I'm building a church for him. I am a means to his end. When we get born again, you know, he could have just harvested us like ripe fruit and taken us to heaven. Boom, 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 boom. Somebody gets saved, boom, they go on to heaven. You know, that, that's, that's not a bad deal, really, providing the message is getting out there. But he has a purpose. And his purpose for us is that we would build his church in the earth while he is building and preparing a place for us in heaven. Now, in heaven, he will make it all about me. But on earth, I need to make it all about him. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, you see, church is family, and no one person is the church. The church is people. The church is, are, are, are the people who have been saved, called out of the world by God, saved by faith, you know, in Christ. And then we are saved to serve Him. Saved to serve. Life is not all about us on planet Earth. Eternity is about us, but Earth is not. Earth is about others. Earth is about making sure that others can get to the eternity that Jesus is building for them, if, if that makes sense. And the Bible is filled with encouraging words as to what and how he wants us to accomplish this. You see, life is a long game, and eternity is a really long game, okay? And... Uh, 
Jesus has filled the Word, this Bible, with encouragements and with admonitions from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. He has filled this Bible with, with encouragements, with admonitions as to how we can win the long game. Okay? And let me tell you, if you're not watchful, you will be tempted by the devil and by life to play this long game called life you'll be tempted to play it with a short game strategy. You cannot win a long game using short game strategy. If you fall prey to the temptation of short game strategy in this long game of life, then you will have to play it over and over and over and over again. Marriage is a long game. If you play it with a short game strategy, you will have to play it over and over and over again. Okay? Life is a long game. Eternal life is a really long game. And Jesus has some winning strategies so that we don't end up failing our primary mission on planet Earth. If we're not watchful, we could make it all about us. In fact, there are doctrines which are based on truth but yet do not flesh out the whole truth. You know, God loves you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to, you know, bless you. Yes, 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 we believe that. But if we're not watchful, if we take that to an extreme, we can make it all about us. We can make God some spiritual Santa Claus or some genie in our, in our Bible that, that, that is bound by some oath or some covenant to make life all about me. No, eternity is all about me. Life is all about others. Okay? And it's important because he wants to use us as a means to an end. And we must be careful not to fall prey to the temptations of short game strategies. Allow me to share, if you would, a little history. Uh, some things that were taking place in the world along about 60 A.D., now, 60 A.D., to put in perspective, that is the time when the Apostle Paul, he had been in prison, he had been in jail, he had been under arrest in Caesarea for two years. About A.D. 58, 59, 60, two years right in there. And about A.D. 60, the Apostle Paul got on a ship and he sailed to Rome because he was going to be in prison in Rome until he could uh, meet with Nero and have audience with Nero and appeal to Caesar to be set free. And so in about A.D. 60, he is moving into a house under house arrest and the house was joining, was attached to Nero's palace and Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire okay? so these things are happening God is using the Apostle Paul to build the church he's going to build the church in Rome okay he's using Paul to accomplish the mission of Christ Paul said I had really rather go to be with him but it's more necessary than I stay here to accomplish a mission of reaching out to you and helping you to get strong so you can accomplish the mission of building the church, you know, that Jesus wants to be built in such a way that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Well, let's back up just a few years. In efforts to expand the Roman Empire, the Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor before Nero, the Emperor Claudius 
in A.D. 43, decided to invade England. It was known as Britain. And so in A.D. 43, he sent troops over to England, expanding the Roman Empire everywhere. Well, what they found there uh, were, were tribes, basically. There were small tribes and villages, and, and these tribes uh, were, were, were just people groups, clans, families, joined together with, 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 with some uh, relationship. And they had a king over them. They had a leader over them. You know, uh, and, and these leaders were recognized. They called them kings. And so uh, they, 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 they were living off the land in that day. In fact, if you can imagine, I know it's hard to imagine, but can you imagine whenever, you know, Christopher Columbus and our founding fathers got here to America, what did they find? They found tribes. They found tribes living off the land and, and agriculture. They were, they were growing things and they were fishing and they were hunting and they were doing these things and living off the land in small tribes. And each tribe protected their boundaries. They taught their people how to war. The Native American Indians taught each one of their people how to protect their boundaries. And they had tribal war back and forth because they had a certain place that belonged to them. You know, this belongs to the Apaches and this belongs to the Arapaho. This belongs to the Blackfoot. This belongs to the, to the Sioux, you know, and, and, and they protected these areas. Well, that's what the Romans found in England. Same thing, okay? Maybe a little different shade of color. Maybe, you know, a, they, they, you know, a, a, a different language. But that's what they found. They found these little tribes with, with, with these chiefs, with these kings. They called them kings. And the Romans, of course, were intelligent. They were educated. They were organized. They felt as though that they were superior and these tribes in Britain, they were savages. They were warlike savages protecting their boundaries. That's exactly what they found, living in huts and living in villages and, 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 and do, you know, doing agriculture. And so, uh, you know, feeling all superior, the Romans felt as though that they needed to conquer these people and, and bring civilization to them, you know. And so they would go out to these tribal leaders. They would go out to these uh, uh, kings, these, you know, uh, Celtic kings, you know, and they would, you know, the Romans would make, uh, make an agreement with the king. They might give them a little money. They may give them a little position, give them a little prestige. And they would say, you look, you know, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to massacre you. And we're not going to run over you as long as you, you know, do what we say. It'll be best for your people. And so, the, the, you know, the, the, these, these Celtic kings, they, they thought, sure. Many of them thought, sure, why not? Why not be friends with Rome? Rome is bringing us stuff. I mean, they're, they're showing us stuff. They're protecting us. They're bringing us stuff. And, and who wants to go up against them because they have this huge army? So, yes, the kings became many times friends, just like the the, the Native American Indians became friends, uh, you know, with, with uh, and had treaties and felt it best not to, you know, buck the system. So all that was taking place. One of these Celtic kings, Celtic kings, uh, was the king over the Iceni tribe, the people. The Iscenes. His name was King Prasutagus. Maybe you've read about him in history. He was one of the independent allies of Rome. And this particular king had married a woman who was of royal lineage from another tribe, and her name was Queen Boudicca. Boudicca. Can you say Boudicca? It's not as fun as Buckaloo, but it's Boudicca, okay? 
Queen Boudicca. Okay? And so, uh, it's important to realize that here in history, during this time, in about 60 A.D., okay, 17 years after the Romans had uh, invaded and occupied Britain, while the Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome, to prison in Rome, uh, this king died. King Prasutagus died. And he left in his will two things. Number one, he wanted to give half of his kingdom to his daughters. Once his wife, Queen Boudicca, passed away, he said, my daughters should rule half of my kingdom. And then, number two, he was going to give Nero the other half. Well, this really seriously upset the Roman government. The Roman government felt as though they should have everything. Okay? I want everything. So there was a tax collector from the Roman government who lived in, in London, what now London, and he decided he was going to take a group of soldiers and he was going to ride up there to, to, uh, to you know, uh, Queen Boudicca because her husband had died and he was going to take everything. So he takes his soldiers. He rides about 75 miles north of London to a little place near Norwich, okay, in Suffolk, Norfolk, and there they began to take all the silver, take all the gold. They began to, um, you know, take all the valuables. And in taking these things, it so upset Queen Boudicca that she came out and said, you can't do this. We're friends. We're allies of Rome. You can't do this. But it ended up that even these Soldiers, you know, they were they were uh, feeling as though that 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 uh, the the Britons, the Celts, feeling as though that they were, um, you know, savages. Instead, these soldiers were commanded to take Queen Boudicca. They took her out and they stripped her and they beat her publicly, humiliated her in front of all of her subjects. What a horrible situation! And then they took her two daughters and they raped her two daughters. Now, this, this was such an injustice, such a departure from all that they had known. And Queen Boudicca vowed revenge. Roman historian Tatticus recorded her vow. You know, he was there observing these things at this time. And his record says this in history. Nothing is safe from Roman pride and arrogance. They will deface the sacred and they will defour our virgins. Win the battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, will do. Wow. Now in Celtic, in Celtic culture, whether you followed a woman or a man didn't make any difference. It did in Romans, but not for the Celts. And the Celts were incensed that someone had, had so publicly humiliated Queen Boudicca. So, she amassed and brought together all the Celtic tribes. And there, perhaps 120,000 people were following her. Over the next few weeks, 
she led them down south to what is now Colchester. And there destroyed the Roman garrison and, and, and the, the building that had been built to honor Claudius, the most important Roman structure in all of Britain. And there, uh, she went from there down to London. In London, there was a, a, you know, a large garrison and there was a commander. This commander's name was Gaius Suetonius Paulinus. I mean, uh, he was a Roman commander and governor, but he didn't have his army with him. And so when he heard that she was coming, and whenever, uh, you know, it looked like that she had 120,000 warriors with her, and what is he going to do? He has no army. He took off and left, and so did the tax collector take off and leave because that tax collector who had had her beat publicly, he was afraid he was going to be killed. So they all left London, and certainly she came in and burned London down as well. Then she turned to a third city and went and burned it. And then uh, this Roman commander who was, you know, not running from Boudicca, he was running to his army because his army of 10,000 was marching from Wales. He caught up with them, and he continues to go away from Boudicca. Here Boudicca comes with her 120,000 or so warriors, overwhelming numbers. They believe that they're savages, but they know that only with 10,000 people, 10 to 1, what can you do? You cannot survive the 10 to 1 odds on the battlefield. And so there... As he is as going away from her, she thinks he's running, but he's not. He's just looking for a good place to fight. It ends up that what he does is he finds this field, and the field is perfect for him. What this field is, it's a place that has a narrow bottleneck in it where he could station his troops behind him. And... Uh, those that are coming toward him, feeding into that bottleneck, his army, his soldiers would never have to face more people that were more in numbers than they were. Perfect strategy. He lines up. This Roman army was an amazing machine. You know, they would have eight people in a line, and the first person would fight six minutes and then they would come off and go back and get back in line. And the next person, six minutes, and get back in line. The next person, six minutes. And it ends up that, that no soldier there under that type of warfare had to fight but six minutes, about, about six minutes out of every hour or out of every 45 minutes. You know, that's kind of a rest, you know, and, and, and then get back into and, and And it worked. This Roman machine was great. Here Boudicca comes, 120,000, 10 to 1. She looks down on this field. 10,000 men down there, I can take them with my 120,000. But she makes a critical mistake. She does not stop to assess and reconsider. She is being moved with an emotionally charged decision. She is passionate, she is prideful, and she's in pain. And any time we make a decision based upon just our passion, our pride, or our pain. Now, she had been done wrong, 
But she was about to make a critical decision because she thinking that, that I've been done wrong and I'm right and, and you think you have right with you and you think that because you're right you're going to win, that does not make the difference. She was about to trade her day for her dream. She was about to make a critical mistake. She was about to waste all of her life and all of her energy on something that was going to go against all that she wanted to accomplish. What she wanted to do and what she had vowed to do was to drive the Romans out of Britain. But what she was going to do is to do something personal for her. When it gets personal, you might be passionate. When it gets personal, you might be right. When it gets personal, you might have been done wrong. But when it gets personal and you start making emotional decisions based upon, I've been done wrong and therefore I get to hurt people who have hurt me. No. Because hurting people who hurt you will not accomplish the goal. Boudicca couldn't see it. Boudicca was the one person in history that had a chance to make a difference. She had a few victories behind her. She had, you know, she was right. She was passionate. She was willing to die for what she believed in. She was the one person. She had a majority with her. She was the one person that could have run the Britons out of, excuse me, run the Romans out of Britain. But she makes a critical mistake. She yells charge. Those 120,000 begin to go down. They're right. They've been done wrong. They're passionate. They're prideful. They're acting on their pain. But it's just an emotional decision. One after one, the Romans stood there, blocking the sword, the spear, and thrusting. Blocking and thrusting, one after the other, standing there. That day, they killed 80,000 Celts. When the battle was over, less than 400 Romans were wounded or dead. Boudicca had lost. We're told that she did not die in battle, but we are told that she poisoned herself because her dream was gone. She traded her day for her dream. And instead of running the Romans out of Britain, the Romans continued to rule England for another 350 years. Why? Because of one woman's emotional, emotionally charged decision. She made it out of passion, pride, and pain. When you go for your day, you can lose your dream. Life is a long game. The goal that Jesus has to build his church is a long game. It's not a short game. 
We are the family of God, and we are the soldiers of the cross. We cannot afford to make some emotional decision that is all about us, that is all about us. Somebody hurts us, so we're going to hurt them. Because if we're not watchful, we will forfeit our chance to help Jesus accomplish his mission and accomplish his goal, to which we are pledged, to which we are willing to give our lives, to which we will gladly die, but not in a waste. We can ill afford to champion our hurts and our pains to the expense of building the body of Christ. You see, hurts, ambitions, goals, personal pains, passions, they don't rise above what is best for Jesus. Sometimes you just have to suffer a wrong. Sometimes you just have to say, yes, I was hurt, but I'm not going to hurt back. Sometimes you have to realize that his goals are bigger than our goals because We win when he wins. And if he doesn't win, we don't win. We cannot afford to champion those things that make us angry, even if we're right. Jesus is building his church, and it may not always favor our moment. We cannot afford to make the moment all about us. We cannot afford to make emotionally charged decisions. We must see our salvation and our relationship with Jesus as a means through which God is going to achieve His plan for humanity. As I said, Jesus is a personal experience, but not a private experience. We were called to show the love of Christ to a lost and a dying world. The church is God's plan. We win when he wins. Like Jesus said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This morning, let me give you three things in conclusion so that I can bring this and tie this all together. Three things that I want to encourage you with. Three things that I am going to do this week. I'm going to help Jesus. Three things. Number one, I'm going to forgive my friends and my enemies. You know, almost anybody can forgive somebody that they love and that they care about. I didn't say this was going to be easy. Have you ever been hurt? Have you been betrayed? Have you been done wrong? Well, do you know what Jesus needs from you? It's what he needs from me. He needs us to forgive. He needs us to forgive our friends and those who have despitefully used us or persecuted us or spoken evil of us. The Bible tells us that we should be a forgiving people. This will help Jesus accomplish his goal because it's not all about me and my pain and my passion. I don't want to lose what I could do for him in accomplishing his goal. So this week, I have decided, and I encourage you, forgive your friends and your enemies. Number two, I'm going to ask forgiveness from God and from others when I'm wrong. 
I know it shocks you, but I'm wrong on occasion. It doesn't shock me that you're wrong on occasion. But you know, we need to be more humble and we need to realize that other people are dealing with things that we did to them. Other people are having to deal every day, every week. You know, perhaps in their nighttime, they're having to deal with a pain or a problem or an unkindness or a, or, or, or a lack of care or concern that we delivered to them. How terrible is that? That we're tempting other people to go for the short-term gain and, and just, you know, just you know, do something they shouldn't do. So I'm going to ask for forgiveness from God and others when I'm wrong. Not when I'm not wrong, but when I am wrong. And you have to be the mature judge of that. And number three, I'm going to help Jesus build his family. I'm going to help him build his family above my passion, my pride, or my pain. I'm going to help Jesus build his family. I'm going to make the church more important. I'm going to make relationships in my family more important than my pride, than my passion, or my pain. There's a bigger thing at stake here. Amen.